0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Really appreciate those songs of worship that um, have all come around that theme of the mission of the church, the glorious love and compassion of God that calls us into a ministry of outreach and love and compassion. And we'll look together at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. And as we prepare to open God's word, let's ask God to open our hearts. Living God, may your word be our rule, may your spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ, our only Savior, amen. As we open to 2 Corinthians 5 together, the title of the message this morning is Good Courage. I almost titled it negatively and that title would have been overcoming fear. You know that fear, when your heart starts to race, when your mouth goes dry, you lick your lips, but to no avail because the nerves just make your mouth go dry and they make your hands and even your wrists get sweaty and everything feels clammy and your eyebrows twitch. Your facial expression betrays that you are afraid, that you're dreadfully nervous because you're about to step out and do something, and the only imagination that you have is that as you step out to do this thing, everything is going to go exactly wrong. Why is it that in evangelism, we have no problem envisioning everything going wrong? making a fool of ourselves worse, making the gospel look bad and everything going wrong. Why is it not that in evangelism, why can't we envision everything going right? And the person that we talk to being receptive and meeting Jesus as their savior and having their whole life turned around by his love. Why do we envision that person hating us more because we evangelize instead of that person being transformed by the love of God in Jesus Christ? So as we look at 2 Corinthians 5 and a couple of related passages this morning before we come to the table, I want to transform your fearful alarm into faithful action in regards to personal evangelism. So 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 21. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you So this text is the right text for us to focus on this morning about good courage because of that phrase, good courage, which is in the very first verse that we read in verse 6. So we are always of good courage. And then it comes up again in verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage. So I want to talk not only about courage, But about this special kind of courage that's specified here in verses 6 and 8 as good courage. So let me lay out three say there's three types of courage. The first is no courage, the second is bad courage, and the third is good courage. What is no courage? No courage is just being fearful and silent. Not being able to fulfill the ministry that Jesus has given you because of your unwillingness to um, step through the fear and the possible shame. That's no courage. But second, there's bad courage. Let's say bad courage is an ugly kind of courage, courage that is offensive, courage that is jerk-faced, Courage that says, I don't care about anyone or anything as long as I can do what I want to do. This is a kind of courage that blithely and boorishly just pounds arguments into people as if people are made out of wood. This is not good courage. But what we want is not no courage. And we don't want bad courage. We want good courage. So the question, what is good courage? Now, to answer that question, I would recall to you the amazing wise words of Rabbi Bowers from this platform just a couple of weeks ago when he said, anytime you read the Bible, the most important thing for you to do after you pray is to make observations. So what is good courage? Verse six, we are always of good courage. Because we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Verse seven, for we walk by faith. Good courage walks by faith. Good courage walks by faith. Verse eight, yes, we are of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Verse nine, so whether we at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Verse seven, good courage walks by faith. Verse nine, good courage has this aim, to please God. Good courage has a sole aim, to please God. What else can we observe about good courage? How about the first part of verse 12? We are not commending ourselves to you. We are not commending ourselves to you. Good courage is not commending yourself. It's commending someone greater. And how about what we can observe in verse 14? For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. Good courage is controlled by the love of Christ. It's not controlled by the fear of man. It's not controlled by my fear of being ashamed or looking like a fool. It's controlled by the love of Christ. Good courage. Courage that loves others. Courage that doesn't commend self, but loves others. There's a bad courage that is sort of a selfish, proud, puffing myself out. There is a good courage that is a selfless love that reaches out past fear and past potential barriers to love others. This is good courage. Now, one more core truth about good courage. Good courage, good courage insists on clarity, Clarity is exceedingly rare these days. Clarity is vanishingly rare in our culture. But good courage insists on clarity. You see it in verse 10? For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Good courage has clarity about the judgment. If there's anything the church wants to get a little bit cloudy about, it's hell, judgment, whatever. Good courage has clarity about the judgment to come. Good courage has crystal clarity about what the death of Christ means. Look at verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Good courage has clarity about what verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Good courage has clarity about the cross of Christ, substitutionary propitiatory atonement good courage has clarity about what that means with good courage there's nothing hidden, sort of an uh, sort of a shuffling obsequious well the cross the blood is just sort of an example of something there's crystal clarity about what happened on that cross through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the clarity that good courage insists upon. As our service concludes this morning, we will come with great clarity to what the body and the blood of Jesus have accomplished. And I would say every soul here, even in this simple opportunity to take or to not take, Every soul here has to come to clarity to say Christ is my life or what I want to do with my life is still my life. Which is it? Clarity. How do we come to clarity? If clarity is exceedingly rare these days, how can Christians like us come to clarity? Well, I want to tell you. It's right here again in our text. The way to come to clarity is... To get first principles first. And first principle is right there in verse 9. For whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. See the second half of verse 9? We make it our aim to please Him. Notice that aim is not plural, many things, just like the text that Brennan opened our service with, Philippians 3. One thing, one aim. We make it our aim to please him. This is our aim, our priority, our settled commitment, our uncompromising first principle. So really here at this point in the sermon, at this point from the word of God, we're, we're by God's goodness, we're in one of those sort of step back and ask a, ask a, a ground level question that seems That seems so simple that we don't even ask it nearly enough. But the Spirit wants us to ask this question in this service this morning, even though it seems so simple that you should be miles away from it. And the simple question is this If I am a Christian, if I am a Christian, how should I live? And why should I live that way? If I'm a Christian, how should I live? And why that way and not some other way? This is a back-to-basics kind of question. They said that every season, Vince Lombardi started practice, the first practice, the same way. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. It has one lace, but eight stitches in the lace. And he just talked about it. And from building from there, they, 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 he, he went to the irreducible bedrock basics. What is this basic question? If I'm a Christian, or now that I'm a Christian, how should I live? And why should I live that way? I submit to you that verse 9 answers that question. Whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. The answer is reiterated in verse 15 and he died for all, verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. There's the dismissal of the wrong aim, might no longer live for themselves, and then here's the restitution of the proper aim, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What should I do? How should I make this decision? What should I do in this situation? What should I focus on? What should be my priority? This is it. Seek to do what pleases God. Make it your aim to please God. If, please hear this, even if you're not yet a believer, especially if you're not yet a believer, if I was you, I would ignore a lot of what I say because you're not even a believer yet, but just hear this. If you make it your aim to please yourself, your life will end poorly. Make it your aim to please God. To make it one's aim to please self is a comfortable form of suicidal insanity because you can't carry yourself into eternity. It'll never happen if you make it your aim to please the people around you, many of you here are believers, but one of your fundamental issues, one of your besetting sins is that you live to please the people around you rather than living to please Christ. If you make it your aim to please the people around you, please hear me, if you make it your aim to please the people around you, your life will unspool in sort of a free fall. You'll have no no center. What the people around you want today, I guarantee you will be different than what the people around you want next month, because that's the way people are. That's no way to live. That's sort of a shifting, chameleon, insecure way to live. Don't do that to yourself or the people around you. Make it your aim to please him. Sanity is making it your aim in life to please the God who created you and the God who can carry you into eternity. That is sanity. That is clarity about life. To make it your aim to please Jesus, though the world calls it foolishness, the Bible calls it the height of wisdom. That's what this text makes so clear, not only in that phrase in verse 9, but in the wonderful truths of verses 14 and 15, the love of Christ controls us. We conclude this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I would like, I would, so when it comes to personal evangelism, when it comes to that awkward conversation, I would like to please the person in front of me. I would like for them not to disagree with me. I would like for there not to be any tension here. But I must please Christ. I want them to like me, and I want to say what will make me liked. But I must please Jesus. I must please Jesus. That's my aim in life. Or go back to the bad courage, sort of pounding arguments at people as if people are made out of wood. I would like to pulverize the person in front of me and show them a thousand ways that their worldview is garbage. I'd like to win this argument, but I, I must not win the argument. I must please Jesus. And Jesus said to love my enemies, Jesus said, when he could have pounded his foe, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I must make it my aim to please him. So it takes good courage to live to please Jesus. Good courage, therefore, is not the absence of fear Good courage, therefore, is not the absence of fear. Good courage is the presence of something stronger than natural fear. Good courage is the presence of something stronger, something better than our fears, than our natural fears. Because don't you see in verse 11? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Good courage is not the absence of fear. Good courage is the presence of something that pushes through all other fear. Fear can still be there. Certainly the fear of the Lord is there. But even a sort of a socially awkward fear can still be there. I'm not saying if you get what this is saying, you won't feel afraid when you have an opportunity to share on Monday. But what I'm saying is there will be something better, purer, sweeter, stronger, higher than that fear. It is the aim to please him. So courage is not the absence of fear, but it is the presence of a motivation that faces fear and presses through because it's not worth knuckling under to fear. It's worth pushing through the fear because there's a greater goal. Boldness is not necessarily the absence of all shaky fear, but it is faith in something bigger than that fear. That's what Jesus said. Hear it from Jesus in Matthew 10. I'll give you the reference so you can write it down if you want it. Matthew 10, verses 26 through 28. I'm going to show you that courage is not the absence of fear, but it's the presence of something greater than natural fear. I'll show it to you from Jesus, from from Paul, and from Peter. From Jesus in Matthew 10, 26 through 28. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 26, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops, Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says there in Matthew 10 that fear of the Lord evaporates the other fears and pushes through them. Paul agrees with this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. I'll give you the reference because maybe you want to memorize some of these references this week. 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 and 8. Paul agrees with exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 10. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 and 8, it says there, remember, uh, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understand. No, that's not the verse I was looking for. 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 and 8. For God gave us a spirit, not a fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Second Timothy 1.7 says, God didn't give us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power and love and discipline. And finally, just one more, uh, the apostle Peter agrees with Paul, who was agreeing with Jesus in 1 Peter 3, verses 14 and 15. The address here is 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15 if you want to memorize this one this week, it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of those people. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I like Peter because he says, hope eliminates or evaporates fear. Hope in God's future. That's a good word. So in each of these passages, we have a God who is bigger than our natural fears. And that's what I call you to, to trust God and overcome fear. I want to challenge you to move forward in courage, and I want to give you four specific challenges, four steps that, that you could take to, as, Christ, as you ask Christ to help you overcome fear You could take these four steps, and I tried to put them in, in uh, ascending order. A first step that you could take in overcoming fear is simply this: uh, invite somebody to church. The simplest thing to say is to ask a question: "Do you have a church that you like?" And follow it up with a statement, because I have a church that I love, and there's room for you with us if you want. If you're looking for a church, and invite somebody to church. That's a that shouldn't be a difficult thing to do. That's like the first step in overcoming this kind of fear. Second step that you could take, ask someone if you can pray for them. Ask someone this week if you can pray for them. I got a quick story about this from, from our life uh, last week. We were in a restaurant. Man serving us, uh, helped us, gave us some some really good barbecue and uh I just said to him real quick, I said, hey, we're going to pray before we eat this. Uh, Is there some way we could pray for you? And he stopped. You could just see it in his face. What he said to us, he said, "Uh, I just moved in with my mom because she's aging and dying. Could you pray for her? I said, absolutely. What's your mom's name? And he told me his mom's name, and we prayed for her before we ate our meal. And before we left, um, I didn't even have to be courageous enough to go back to him. He came to us and said, I really want to thank you for praying for my mom. And I was like, well, since he came back to us, let's keep this going. And I just, I just said, can I ask you something? Maybe this is a weird question. Is your mom afraid of dying or is she at peace with God? And he kind of said, I think she's afraid. And I said, you know, I just said, I just said, I'm a Christian and one of the best things about being a Christian is you don't have to be afraid of dying because that, that's why Jesus Christ died and rose again. And I said to him, and don't dismiss yourself from saying this just because I'm a pastor. I, you don't have to be a pastor to say this. I said to this guy, hey, if your mom would like somebody to come pray for her and tell her how, not, how to not be afraid of dying, here's my phone number, call me, and you know, I, I'd come and do that. This is a, it's just simply asking someone to pray for them. You never know what's going to happen. Invite somebody to church, ask somebody if you can pray for them. A third step you could take is share scripture. That's the, the sharing scripture is so powerful and yet it can be intimidating because it's the Bible and but just share scripture with somebody. Just say, you know, this is a verse that that I read this morning and I've been thinking about it all day. Can I share it with you? And share scripture with somebody. The fourth step would be take the time to share the gospel with somebody. Just say, "Hey, I'm a Christian." Could, would you mind if I took a couple of minutes and shared with you what it means, uh, you know, to be a Christian? Take those steps of boldness and overcome fear. You know, fear doesn't come so much from the external circumstances around us. Fear comes from the internal uh, cowardice within us. I think I could prove this biblically, but I could also prove it just sort of uh, pastorally, right, because I know church members who the, 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 the vague possibility that some not very important 31-year-old somewhere will object to you keeps you afraid. And I know other church members who are here in this room right now who have repeatedly faced Persecution, being threatened with unemployment, harsh measures, and those circumstances have not stopped you from moving forward with boldness. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't so much come from the circumstances outside of you. It comes from the internal posture of your heart. Maybe the source of overwhelming fear is not the persecution without but the lack of faith within. Maybe the source of fear is not what other people are saying or might say about you. Maybe the source of fear is not what other people are saying or might say about you. Maybe the source of fear is how faint and how small within you is the voice of what God has said about himself and about you. Listen to how this comes up. He just mentions it in passing. You don't have to turn there. In Deuteronomy 7, God's talking to his people about being afraid. And God says to his people in Deuteronomy 7, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 17, he says to his people, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. Deuteronomy 7, verse 17 and 18. God's, God is sending Israel out into the land, just like at the conclusion of this service, we're going to send you out into the land, not to conquer it with a sword, but to sh- conquer it with the compassion of Jesus. And it, as, as Moses is sending the people out into the land, just as you're going to be sent out, uh, he says, if you go out there, you're going to see there are a whole lot more of them than there are of us. And their biceps and their chariots and their swords are a whole lot more impressive than ours are. So what he says in Deuteronomy 7 verse 17 is, do not say in your heart. What a beautiful expression in the Hebrew. Do not say in your heart, they are stronger than us. But remember what the Lord your God has done. Why is it that one tiny whisper of possible opposition can shut us up? But other people can face such opposition and yet keep going. It's not a personality type. It's not a spiritual gift of evangelism. It's simply this, that for some of us, the voice of the opposition rings so loud that we keep echoing it in our heart. And for others of us, The voice of God in the word of God is the echo and the internal dialogue and the internal monologue that we have within our own spirit. And that strengthens us. So all I'm saying is that fear comes from what you say to yourself about your circumstances. And faith Isn't faith simply believing and constantly hearing what God has said to you about yourself and himself and how he'll walk with you through your circumstances? Fear is what you say to yourself in your heart in the absence of faith. Faith is trusting the word of God in your heart. It's what strengthens you to overcome fear. Fear maximizes present perspective on possible problems. Fear maximizes present perspective on possible problems. Faith remembers God's past action, God's past action. Faith remembers God's past action and God's promises about our future. Fear just, fear just metastasizes when we go over and over our circumstances in an unbelieving way, what if faith could just grow like that? That's why we pray, that's why we preach, that's why we sing, that's why we come to this table, so that faith can grow, faith in God's promise, trust in God's provision, even faith and trust in the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've spoken so directly to us. And you've said, Oh my children, do not say in your heart that the world is stronger than you are. Do not say in your heart that unbelief will prevail. Oh Heavenly Father, strengthen our faith. Even now, as we come to this table, may the bread and the wine nourish and strengthen us. May the body and blood of Jesus give us strong confidence, compassionate courage, and a living and abiding faith. Lord Jesus, bless your people as they worship you. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.